Um, we're supposed to stay to the right, I think. And so Jean said that if you keep going, um, like on the right side, so I'd say just keep, yeah, just to keep right. Oh, it says do not enter, so maybe over here. said it would be, okay, take another lap. She said it would be like, she said it's on the right side of the entrance. So that's where it will focus our attention. On a recent sunny and very ordinary Wednesday afternoon, one of our photographers, Tim, and I ventured out to a Longmont cemetery. Foothills Garden of Memory was smaller than either of us pictured. Laid out in an almost perfect circle, gravestones dotted the ground in perfect little rows. But none of the stones had the name that we were looking for. Trust me, we weaved through that entire cemetery for hours. So it could be Dennis Wiles or Georg Gertner. While I was assured that he had been interred here, there was no sign of Dennis Wiles or Georg Gertner listed on any of these graves. When I called the cemetery's new owner the day before, he said he had no record of either name. Were they buried together, he asked? Mm, not quite. You see, Georg Gertner was born in Schweidnitz, Germany in 1920. As he came of age, Adolf Hitler rose to power, and at age 19, he joined the Nazi army. He would go on to fight in Rommel's Africa Corps before the troops on the North Africa coast fell to Allied powers in 1943. As a result, Gertner was one of thousands who were captured, processed, and shipped to the United States as prisoners of war. Gertner would serve two years in a prisoner of war camp in Deming, New Mexico. But unlike the other prisoners there, Gertner wouldn't be going home. After World War II ended, he made a decision. Instead of going home to an uncertain future in what was now Russia-occupied East Germany, he would take his chances on an escape. On a moonlit night in late September 1945, Gertner slipped out of the camp and into American life. He adopted the alias Dennis Wiles and lived for the next four decades as a wanted fugitive. As the years passed, the number of fugitive German POWs whittled down to one, Gertner, or Wiles. He became Hitler's last soldier in America, or so he'd call himself in his 1985 memoir. That was the year he surrendered to authorities. By that time, he was in his 60s and living in Boulder. He would spend the final years of his life shuffling between cities in northern Colorado. And in 2013, when he died, he was buried here, in Longmont's Foothills Garden of Memory. Or so I was told. After searching and searching with no luck, the cemetery's owner actually pulled up. He had an answer. Georg Gertner, or Dennis Wiles, was indeed here. Years ago, a documentary film crew had come around to film some shots of his final resting place, and in the process, the cemetery's old owner removed his plaque from the columbarium 
where Gartner's ashes were interred. In an oversight, they never put the plaque back. For the past four years, Gartner's box in the columbarium remained unmarked, covered with a blank tile. The tile with his name was safe and at the mortuary that handled Gartner's cremation. That would soon be remedied, the cemetery owner assured me. Gartner, whose remains were located in box 41 of an east-facing columbarium, would soon have his tile restored. The funny thing is, my eyes had passed over that box twice that day, completely unaware that I was inches from Gartner's final resting place. I had to laugh at the irony a little bit. How could I not? All these years later, and he'd still managed to hide in plain sight. I'm Erin Udell, and you're listening to episode 22 of The Way It Was, the Fort Collins, Coloradoans History Podcast podcast, Hitler's Last Soldier. I did get the job and I went back to New York City for uh, management training. I was there for probably about a month and then I was uh, deployed as a um, trainer and went to different parts of the country to train uh, management staff in the various uh, local areas. That's Jean Wiles and she's taking a time machine back to the early 60s back when she was a divorcee and a single mother living in the San Francisco Bay Area. After an earlier career in social work, Jean took a job, the one she was just talking about, in insurance to support her and her two children. Um, I went to, uh, used to I, well, I still do, love dancing. And um, I went one night to uh, up the peninsula, we'll say, uh, toward San Mateo area, and went to uh, a YMCA singles dance. And uh, I was uh, dancing and then I was standing there and um, someone came up behind me and um, said, would I like to dance? And I looked over my shoulder and there's this tall, nice looking um, gentleman. And yes, we started dancing and um, went out afterwards and had uh, just sat and talked and talked and started um, dating, and uh, he lived at the time uh, up there in the San Mateo area, and I lived in Palo Alto. So he would come down and see me, and we eventually, within six months, were engaged. The couple married in 1964 and settled in Palo Alto. And as far as she knew, her new husband was Dennis Wiles, a 43-year-old salesman with a tragic past. He didn't tell me much of anything at that time. He told me that uh, he had been married before, but it didn't work out. And that his parents had died 
number of years ago uh, in an accident in, um, and he was sent to the Connecticut School for Boys, was an orphan. So I never pressed him on any of those issues because as from my you know, kind of social work background, I uh, wasn't prepared for what his, for, to have him go through any more pain. Jean ended up settling in northern Colorado, where she still lives today. And perched on a stool in her kitchen on a recent afternoon, she graciously relived her years with Gertner, or, as she knew him, Dennis. By 1964, the year they married, he was officially the last fugitive German POW being hunted by American authorities. At one time, there had been a dozen. Now, after years of hopping from job to job and moving from town to town, he was it. Jean wouldn't know this, of course until 20 years into their marriage. People, other women mostly, always ask how she could have missed his accent. But after years of suppressing it, she said any trace of an accent was indistinguishable to her. He told her he was from New York, and she had no reason not to believe him, no reason to question who he was. There was one time, though, thinking back, one little slip-up, she recalls. The only one time I recall having a question at all was um, he talked one time about um, uh, some kind of food that you don't hear about very much, and he said the word in German. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. I wonder how he knew about that. It had to do with almonds. It was marzipan a European confection made from almond meal, honey, and sugar. It's a typical Christmas time treat in places like the Netherlands, Belgium, and Germany. While hiding behind this American name and this fake backstory, Dennis Wiles was still Georg Gertner, the German soldier who ran from his prisoner of war camp all those years ago. So how did he get there in the first place? I'll tell you after the break. You're listening to The Way It Was, a history podcast brought to you by The Coloradoan. At The Coloradoan, we have 20 journalists who live in and love Fort Collins just as much as you do. This community is our home, and we're committed to digging in on local government, providing you in-depth breaking news coverage, making sure you're up to date on the latest things to do, and bringing you up-to-the-minute sports scores. The fact of the matter is, we can't keep doing what we love to do, things like this podcast, without your support. Consider signing up for a digital subscription today at coloradoan.com slash podcast offer. Thanks for reading and listening. Uh, my parents uh, were had just escaped the Holocaust in Hungary, came to the United States in 1939, just under the wire. That's Arnold Kramer. He's a retired history professor who taught for more than 40 years at Texas A&M. His field was Nazi German history, 
World War One, and World War Two. They were already, my parents were Jewish. My mother was studying to become a pharmacist, and she was already being uh, harassed at pharmacy school. Uh, she left the room for some reason. She came back and found her papers were uh, scribbled with swastikas and things like that. So it was starting to get uh, dicey. Okay. And people were leaving when they could, and my parents found a way to to uh, leave. 1939, April of 39. The war and broke out in September, and they left Hungary in, in April of 39, came to Chicago, uh, where I was born in Chicago, and uh, that's all they talked about was the war, the Nazis, who survived, who didn't survive. Um, so I got it with my mother's milk. It was just something that everybody talked about. The year the war broke out, Georg Gertner turned 19. The following year, 1940, he joined the Nazi army, becoming part of the force that the Kramers and so many others were running from. Gertner was one of three children in a comfortably middle-class family in Schweidnitz, Germany. Since the town was largely surrounded by rural farmland, Gertner claims in his book that Hitler's rise to power and the rise of the Nazi party was seen in only small changes in Schweidnitz. Some parades, a smattering of Nazi flags, and whispers of Jews being rounded up in far-off cities. Years later, in his book, Gertner would claim to not be political, to just be a young man fighting someone else's war, unaware of the atrocities it would become known for. In fact, when he and Kramer met in the 80s, and they decided to work on Gertner's memoir together, Kramer would get frustrated with him. I had an arrangement with my publisher, Stein and Day, in New York, that every time I finished a chapter, I needed to send it to George, he had to sign the chapter before I sent it to the publisher. That way we were protected against later lawsuits or things like that. And he, uh, I got a call from the publisher once <clears throat> saying that um, we haven't gotten the chapter. Uh, was, I can't imagine. I sent it to George for his signature. I called him, and uh, he uh, salt, uh George, what's wrong? Well, uh, I said, the publisher says you haven't said it. Uh, I said, you know, he said, well, you made me look bad. I made you look bad, all right? You made me look like a Nazi. I said, George, you were a Nazi. Uh, well, you know, uh, I said, I, I've got 18 organizations that you belong to that were Nazi organizations. You had to have been a Nazi. I'm not judging you. I'm just saying... Yes, you were. But everybody at that time in your area in Germany would have been a Nazi. Well, anyway, he sulked for a while and uh, time to bring him out of it. In retrospect, nobody was a Nazi. Looking back, oh, no, we weren't Nazis. At the time, they were. I think that's uh, generally true for most of these. Uh, they were Nazis at home, and once they left Germany... And it's, uh, certainly once the war was lost, uh, their Nazism faded away pretty quick. <laughs> yes, it did. 
I've met these guys by the by the ton. I've interviewed them by the bunch. And today, with big beer bellies and grandchildren, and today they they can't remember who Hitler was. Gertner joined the Nazi army as an artillery man in 1940. In 1942, he was sent as part of Rommel's Africa Corps to the coast of North Africa. A year later, in April 1943, the Nazis fell to the Allied powers and Gertner became a prisoner of war, prisoner 81-G80392. He would be brought to the U.S. through Norfolk, Virginia, then taken by train to McLean, Texas, Lordsburg, New Mexico, and finally Deming, New Mexico. In his memoir, Gertner talked about how different America was from what he'd pictured. He said due to books and Hitler's characterizations of the country, he thought it was undeveloped, scarcely populated, and lawless, like the Old West. Instead, he was stunned to see sophisticated cities, big buildings, and people from his train window. When he reached the small satellite camp in Deming, he said he and the other prisoners were treated and fed well. The American government had given each camp radios and subscriptions to the New York Times. As one of the few prisoners who spoke English, Gertner said he would often translate reports about the unfolding war. At first, he claims they didn't believe reports of Allied wins, since most of the prisoners had grown up with Germany's propaganda and state media. To be honest, we started out delighted at the embarrassing articles about labor or food shortages, gangland killings, and of America's blatant discrimination against its black citizens, Gertner wrote in his book. We were astonished that the government would allow such negative items to reach print, especially during wartime, when such information could be used as propaganda by the enemy. Gradually, we began to realize that if the government was willing to disclose its failures to the public, then surely the positive items would be true as well. In May 1945, the German prisoners in Gertner's camp were dumbstruck to learn of Hitler's suicide. Some men were sad, some were angry, and many wondered what would happen to them. They found out in early September 1945 that after working on rehabilitation projects throughout France and Great Britain, they'd be sent back to their respective hometowns. For Gertner, that meant Schweidnitz. Only now, it wasn't the Schweidnitz he knew. It was under Russian control. The policy was send them back to the uh, cities where they came from. And so Schweidnitz, have... East Prussia, was under the Russians. So um, can you speculate as to what, what his fate would have been if he'd gone home? I don't know, but he didn't either, and that's what frightened him. So Gertner escaped. He waited until night fell, sneaked out of his barracks, and while everyone was in the mess hall watching an old western, he raced to the camp's fences, dodging the watchtower's spotlights. He sprinted into the New Mexican desert, and just as he'd planned, came across railroad tracks that were four or five miles away. He ran alongside a coming freight train, grabbed onto the side and hurled himself into an open car. While authorities would later focus their search for him on the New Mexico desert, 
The next time Gertner's feet touched the earth, he was in San Pedro, California. For that first year, he claims to have lived in almost complete isolation. He tried not to speak, in case anyone would notice his accent. He also took to combing his hair with a part instead of straight back in the European style. He had to learn that Nat King Cole and Duke Ellington weren't royalty, that a man named John could also go by Jack or James or Jim, that Robert could also be Bob. In that first year, he was Pete, Peter Peterson. That was his first American alias. He'd soon become Dennis Wiles. And for the next 40 years, would hop around from job to job. When he and Jean got married, their house was always in her name. He would drive around the block twice, looking for unmarked police cars before ever pulling into their driveway. And he kept a $50 bill in the bottom of his shoe, just in case he ever needed to make a run for it at a moment's notice, to buy a bus ticket, a hotel room. In the early 80s, finally faced with the prospect of losing Jean, he stopped running. More on that next. You're listening to The Way It Was, a history podcast brought to you by Coloradoan Experiences. Picture this, it's a warm summer evening and you're just sitting down to a five-course gourmet dinner from one of Northern Colorado's top chefs. You're enjoying a glass of wine and getting to know the new friends sitting next to you. These pop-up dinners at a secret location are just some of the events the Coloradoan puts on each year. Visit tickets.coloradoan.com for the latest events and come join us for a dinner, a food truck festival, a storytelling night, or something else. We're excited to meet you. We moved down to uh, start the Swim and Racket Club at Aptus Seascape. And it was adjacent or on the grounds of the um, Seascape Golf Course. Beautiful area. It's just north of Carmel, not too far, and right on the uh, ocean. That's Jean again. She's talking about her and Dennis's moves after her two children were out of the house. After years in Palo Alto, they finally headed to a resort community off of the California coast. Dennis, a longtime golfer and tennis player, really wanted to open a swim and racket club at an existing golf course called Seascape. And they did, becoming quite the couple about town in the process. I have an album, I have the newspaper clippings of this new couple and the seascape and these pictures. And then we had um, also uh, international tournaments with the leading tennis stars of the time. And I uh, ran the pro shop, did the fashion shows and all kinds of things like that, so social side. And had by that time evolved, not from just the little wife at home, but the, actually the managing of most all our affairs. And that was just, um, over time, Dennis had more and more withdrawn from 
exposure of any kind. Like he didn't want his own uh, signatory on bank accounts. Uh, I was really into buying property. We built our new home on Sound Dollar Beach and these various places, and he wouldn't, he wouldn't sign the paperwork. It was during this time, surrounded by this beautiful beach setting of all places, that Jean said she started to have this feeling, this uneasiness. Um, we'd been there at the racket club for several years, and um, my, um, the emotional deprivation, the best term I can think of subjectively, started really getting more and more to me. That I never could figure out how, why, on a deep emotional level, that we just were not connecting. And uh, so I'd go off and I'd do other things, go play tennis, go play golf. Uh, whatever. And um, just over time then, for those years at the racket club, I was more and more aware that uh, things were, something was just not fulfilling. Jean was able to find happiness again, this time on the beaches of Hawaii. In the early 70s, the couple went on a vacation there, and Jean just couldn't bring herself to go home. So she sent Dennis back to get their dog, sell their house, and move their things to Hawaii. Jean found a job she loved there with the Hawaiian Refugee Resettlement Program. Dennis ended up working high-paying construction jobs. Life was good again. They were growing old together, eyeing retirement even. But that would turn out to be the beginning of the end for Dennis Wiles. He was approaching, uh, he was married to Jean, and uh, he was approaching uh, a retirement, and she was preparing his package. He told her that he had, he came from upstate New York, and as they approached 60, as he approached 65, she started to put his package together, wrote to uh, upstate New York, wrote to Albany, and they said they had no record of the, uh, of Dennis Wiles. She confronted him. Dennis, they don't know who you are in, in Albany. Did I tell you I was from, from upstate New York? Well, that's just silly. I'm from New Jersey. And he started to gaslight her, uh, making her believe that she was, there was something wrong with her. Uh, and she sent off to New Jersey. And again, they told her, no, we don't know who he is. We have no record. Uh, and she confronted him again, and he began hunkering down. And uh, they went to a marriage counselor. And he was lying to the marriage counselor. Uh, the marriage counselor pulled uh, her aside and said, I don't know what's going on, but uh, if you want to protect your sanity, I think you may want to consider leaving him. After months of secrecy and no answers, Jean went on a trip to Fiji, knowing when she came back, something was going to have to change. Within several months, is when I said, that was it, and, and now my bags are packed, and the taxi is coming. And that's when he broke down and told me. So what did he say exactly, do you remember? I remember him uh, being in tears, and I remember I was sitting up on the kitchen counter, and he was sitting there pour, uh, crying and pouring out this story, just like an uh, avalanche or waterfall coming out about what had happened. 
And so he said, you know, I, I was a soldier and I was a few He told me the whole story. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Jean told me that there was never a part of her that even considered walking away from Dennis after he came clean. He needed her, now more than ever. And she leapt into action. She traveled to New Mexico to research her husband and his escape. She found a book titled Nazi Prisoners of War in America, a comprehensive history of how the U.S. detained nearly half a million Nazi prisoners of war on American soil between 1942 and 1945. The author, Arnold Kramer. She tracked him down and connected Kramer with Dennis. She found an attorney to determine their safest next steps. And with whispers of an immigration sweep set to hit Hawaii, she quickly moved the two of them to Boulder, Colorado, where her daughter was living at the time. Their attorney set up interviews for Dennis with the FBI and Immigration and Naturalization Service. Gene oversaw his surrender, basically. Then, after he and Kramer's book published, she oversaw the flood of TV interviews and book signings that were to come. This was a huge deal. And because it was such an odd situation, there were some questions as to what might happen to Dennis. He wasn't an illegal immigrant, since he'd been brought into the country legally as a prisoner. And since the war was long over, he was no longer a prisoner of war. Plus, it had just been such a long time. I have a a shoebox full of of, uh, articles that came out right around that time. Uh, Dennis wanted to make sure that his his story wasn't uh, swept under the carpet uh, and that he would be taken to Schweidnitz without any anyone knowing it. Um, and the publisher worked out the, his surrender to Brian Gumbel. Now, I, I, I have the tape, and if you can imagine, uh, Dennis, Brian Gumbel, there was a lady there from the Immigration Naturalization Service. As a matter of fact, while they were trying to figure out what to do with this man on the Brian Gumbel show, um, the lady from Immigration Naturalization uh, stood up, extended her hand, shook his hand, and said, uh, Mr. Uh, Wilds, or whatever he used at the time, uh, let me welcome you to the United States as a new immigrant, and you will begin your uh, immigration process, and you will be a, an American citizen in five years. And then the reception that he was getting, he he became quite uh, the, the uh, uh, not the star, that's not a good word, but the attraction, and he was out of my control. I couldn't protect him, I couldn't manage, I couldn't. So it was a real um, emotional um, turmoil for me during those times. I had to just just hand over the management of his life. It sounds like you didn't have have time to really let it sink in at all, like this. No, it just was a whirlwind. Yeah. And we went from there to all those places and, As I said, he was so well-received, and then there were book signings when he got back to Boulder, and just a whole, uh, several, not months, but years, that transpired. After his surrender, Gertner was finally able to go home, for the first time in 40 years. He and Jean quickly planned a trip back to his hometown to visit his sister, the only surviving member of his immediate family.
While there, the couple officially got married, since their first one technically didn't count. And then they came home. Still feeling a pull to his home country, Gertner returned to Germany for a second time, this time without Jean. The days went by, then weeks, then months, then two years. She didn't hear a word from him. Frustrated after no communications from her husband, Jean filed for divorce. Gertner later returned to Colorado, and the two reconnected as friends. Uh, during the intervening years, which we won't go into today, but from the time he actually moved back from Germany and reunited with m- my family here, um, many things have happened. But basically, we're, we were his support group, uh, medical power of attorney, took him one, <laughs> one time, uh, I can't remember which year, several years after he came back, um, he showed me something, uh, a notice from, and I'm, I can't remember it's the Department of Motor Vehicles or the license, or whatever. He'd used his Georg, Georg, uh, Georg Max Gertner and they sent him a notice. What is this? You know, you're dead. So I, oh my, what should I do? Because he, so he would. He, he just, because of this uh, inability to ever put the two um, actual people, if you will, actual psyches mm-hmm. <laughs> together, every once in a while he'd slip up. So it was that, oh my gracious, what to do? So I got that straightened out. Uh, got a name change, and uh, several things like that happened over time. So my family would pitch in. Jean's apartment is still dotted with landscapes Gertner had painted for her. Even after their divorce, he always remained Grandpa Dennis to Jean's grandkids. When he needed a place to live, Jean helped find him an apartment. In his later years, as his health failed, she would get him to and from the hospital for treatments and tests. And in 2009, she and her son Mark drove Dennis down to Denver for something special. On November 8, 2009, after several years of, of uh, negotiations, if you will, uh, my son and I took Dennis, a.k.a. Georg Gartner, to the um, Centennial Office of the U.S. Immigration and Natural Services to stand up with, I think there were 68 other people from various parts of the world, to raise his right hand and uh, take the oath of citizenship. And I have his certificate and pictures, which you may look at on my... What was that like uh, to watch it? It was just, um, I can't describe the emotional content. Georg Gertner, or Dennis Wiles, died about three years later, on January 30th, 2013. He was 92 years old. In his last years, he'd had a series of strokes, his memory was slipping, and Jean and her family moved him up to an assisted living home in Loveland. After he died, they interred him at Foothills Garden of Memory and got a little tile inscribed with the names Georg Gertner and Dennis Wiles on it. After all, he did live two lives. You know, when I first heard about Gertner, 
and started doing research for this podcast, I had resigned myself to the fact that this story didn't have a hero. I mean, Gardner was a Nazi, and on top of that, he was a fugitive for 40 years. You see, I hadn't expected Jean, this adventurous, empathetic character, a daughter of the Golden West, who mooned over nuns as a kid, even though her family wasn't Catholic, who crawled under the tent flaps of revivalist meetings because she was just so drawn to people, people from different backgrounds and religions. In college, when an epidemic of meningitis swept the campus, she was the only one who cared for, let alone even got near, one of her friends who was infected. As a young mother, she worked as a social worker in the migrant labor camps of Northern California. And when her husband came forward with his darkest secret, she sat with him in their kitchen, put her arms around him as he sobbed, and figured out what to do next. She put up with this nonsense. Uh, she also had two children, and she, was, she needed a safe harbor. Anyway, she's almost the hero of the story. I'm Erin Udell with the Fort Collins Coloradoan. Thanks so much for listening to the latest episode of The Way It Was, a podcast podcast. <laughs>